Good morning. I'm your hostess, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 7, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Ever deeper into the Make America Quake Again. I want to first open with a few other comments that are special. First, they came for the Muslims, and I did not speak out because I was not a Muslim. Then they came for undocumented heads of the household, and I did not speak out because I have papers. Then they came for lesbians, gays, bi's, trans, and queers, and I did not speak out because I was straight as an arrow. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So along with the, all the drama, with the Russian drama, and the tweeting at late night from Mar-a-Lago, folks, this is what's been passing in the, in the US Congress. One, terminate the EPA. Two, vouchers for public education. Three, terminate the Department of Education. Four, repeal rule protecting wildlife. Five, repeal Affordable Care Act. Six, defund Planned Parenthood. Seven, national right to work, effectively ending unions. Eight, mobilizing against sanctuary cities bill. And nine, criminalizing abortion. 10, sanctions against Iran. Well, today's program, it's an Immigration Awareness Week, and what better time to bring UCI lecturer Tina Scholl to talk about her work with Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, we'll call it CIVIC for short, in the interview. With immigration policy redefining our socioeconomic landscape, Tina will give us a closer look at lives that are immediately and completely affected. Then our second guest, UCI professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies, Jean Shepard, will talk about her brand new book out entitled Moving Performances, Divas, Iconicity, and Remembering the Modern Stage, published by Rutgers University Press. She'll reprise early 20th century greats, Ada Overton Walker, Loie Fuller, Libby Holman, and Josephine Baker. You know, the Beyonce's and Janelle Monet's of earlier days. We'll be right back. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for staying with us today, welcoming you back. My first guest is Tina Scholl, Christina Scholl to detention officers, that is. She is a 2016 Soros Justice Fellow and a lecturer in U.S. and world history at UCI. Her course topics at UCI include race and mass incarceration, foreign relations, Cold War culture, climate change, and migration useful day job for the activism that she maintains with the national nonprofit organization Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, also known as CIVIC. With this organization, Tina Scholl works to dismantle the immigration detention system from the inside by challenging censorship practices, exposing abuses, and lifting up migrant voices in popular media and public discourses. She's also editor-in-chief of Civic's Detention Stories blog, IMM Print. She has also published Nobody Wants These People, Reagan's Immigration Crisis and the Containment of Foreign Bodies. She completed her BA at UCLA, 
her master's in humanities and social thought and her MA and PhD in history at UCI. She joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tina Scholl. Thank you for having me. We're so pleased to have you here to put a real lot of context on what may be happening off of many people's radars. Well, you were recently in Tijuana, and so you met with some folks. What did you learn? What can you tell us? Because some of us haven't been there yet. Yes. There has been, even before Trump came into office, there has been a crisis in immigration detention system. There has been a record number of people in detention uh, over the past year. We do have a quota where we need to keep at least 34,000 people in immigration detention a day since 2009, but we have surpassed that under the Obama administration, and there's currently about 42,000 people in detention. This was largely due to, over the last year, there's been an increase in asylum seekers, especially from Africa and Haiti, coming to the United States to seek asylum, and many of them have are have ended up in migrant shelters in Tijuana and other border cities. And so we went down last week, uh, Jan Meslin and myself, uh, another civic staff member. Also a previous guest a couple times. Yes, that's right. And we visited these migrant shelters and what I had known about them beforehand was I had heard that there were about five or six shelters that had a, you know, kind of an overflow um, and underfunding to support the number of refugees staying there. And what I learned was that those were only the ones that are registered nonprofits. There's actually many more makeshift shelters that are housing people. In fact, probably 100 plus homes that people have opened up. Um, Some of these are orphanages. Some of them are migrant shelters for people who have been deported. Um, So there's this circular flow now. There's people, increasing number of people have been deported, and there's an increasing number of people stopping at the border, and their hopes of getting into the United States are now slim to none. And so the migrant flows are starting to slow down coming northward, but there are still many people that are stuck in Tijuana, already an overwhelmed city. Um, there's, There's no work opportunities for folks. And so we went down and we met these amazing people that are working to help support this this network of shelters. There's an organization called Border Angels run by Hugo Castro and uh, Madres y Familia Deportadas run by Maria or known as Marie Cookie. And she runs a, a shelter right across the border where people who are recently deported show up and this network of people um, operating on a shoestring, on a shoestring budget. They are, they are literally keeping people alive and delivering food and clothing. And there's so much need and it is so deep and it's so tragic that it's U.S. policies and now Trump's promise to greatly reduce the admission of refugees into the U.S. um, that is going to keep people in this stuck position. And once again, Maria Cook's Cook's organization's name? Uh, Madres y Familia Deportades. Okay, we'll put that in the summary. Send me that. Um, so uh, so what's happening is that there are wage or, or breadwinners that are being yanked out of their communities, out of their households. So there's 
revenue not being collected by mm-hmm. the public agencies because they're they're paying in property tax, they're paying in with the social security and they're paying in sales taxes and all that. That's not going in anymore. There are people now that are not getting they're not being supported by anything. And so then there is there funds that go instead into the expense of detention mm. of those breadwinners. So it's it seems to be a net loss for everybody. Absolutely. The trick is is that a lot of right-wing anti-immigrant think tanks when they propagate this idea that immigration costs us money or that undocumented migration costs us money, they include the money that we spend on enforcement when they crunch their numbers, grossly inflating the cost on American taxpayers. Actually, in reality, immigrants pay taxes, undocumented immigrants pay $12 billion in surplus in taxes than they receive in return each year. And also, yes, the detention industry, it is a for-profit industry, and it is, it is costing taxpayers $5 billion a year. And Trump wants to double detention numbers uh, as quickly as possible and award more contracts to private prison companies. And so this is a dire situation, um, and it, is, it, it wreaks economic havoc on, on families, on communities, and... Well, and we're going to see some service, I mean, some entire economic sectors that are. So let's talk about Absolutely. Adelante is like the, the, the poster detention mm-hmm. center. It's the largest in California, mm-hmm. and it is outside of Victorville. It's quite isolated, and that's where many are now being detained from anywhere in California, in it's Adelante Prison. Talk about, you were, you've, been there to, you've been there a number, how many times have you been to Adelante Prison? I've been about five times to visit okay, people. Okay, so you're, there's a lot you can tell us. And this mm. is one of those private institutions mm-hmm. that is owned by GEO Group. And that is, of course, we, we could connect dots with GEO Group's lobbying and underwriting various candidates that are were successful in this last election cycle. So tell us about uh, this. It's the newest, I should hasten to say, as well as the largest. And it's going, it's going to be expanded that facility. So you were recently there. Tell us about what we also need to know. Our, tell us some personal situations there. Absolutely. Um, actually, I'll start with a story that was in the media just last week. Last Tuesday, uh, Romulo Avelica Gonzalez was dropping off his daughter at school in Highland Park, and two dark cars with immigration agents uh, arrested him, and he is now being detained at Adelanto. He has been in the United States for two decades. Um, he has children in the United States. Uh, his, his criminal record is a DUI um, from several years ago, and this is a uh, I wouldn't say this is a typical case, but but a lot of people at Adelanto have minor criminal records. Um, There also are asylum seekers and people with no criminal records being held. Um, And now his family is not able to visit him because GeoGroup is claiming that there is a chicken pox quarantine happening at Adelanto. 
And this is a common theme in detention, especially for-profit detention. There is inadequate medical care, and there is we have continued difficulties with visitation rights and having access to people in detention. Well, it seems like, could there be, is there a public health official that could come in and debunk that, say, okay, you know, I mean, every, if everybody knows what that means, is there a way to sort of disassemble that ruse so that it's, it lifts that, that one more isolating tactic? For for journalists or reporters or any, any public official, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein visited Adelanto in August, and after that, we'll go on, they go on what we call a tour, and you have to get written permission from ICE ahead of time. And really, they very take, does much, it take a while? They, yes, and they limit access. Um, hmm. It's very difficult for a journalist to interview someone in detention, for example. Um, so Diane Feinstein in August went on a tour, and then a woman from Russia wrote me a letter after the fact, and she told me it was a, quote, fake show. They clean the place up. They show people that go on the tours that, that it looks to be in operation and that everybody has access to a legal library, everybody has recreation, everybody has visitation rights. But in reality, it's much more dire. People are often denied those rights. People are often put in solitary confinement for the most minor things, uh, even helping each other with their legal cases. And uh, civic members went on a tour last week of Adelanto, and we saw um, from very serious medical conditions. There were three pregnant women being held. There was a woman who had a stroke um, and had not been seen. Uh, there was a woman who was in a car accident before being detained and was having trouble walking and had not yet been seen by any uh, medical professional. And so this is, this is an illustration of the, the, the serious human rights violations that occur inside detention. And these stories are very hard to get out to the general public. And the, the, the bittersweet thing about this moment is that these stories are getting out. Journalists are covering Hello. it. Hello. Um, Tina's yeah, here. Exactly. R Romulo's daughter was on Democracy Now! Right, a yesterday. couple of days ago. Yesterday. Yeah. She, and so, she's been on. Yeah. She's been covered on various other platforms. So yeah. did you, do you think that Diane Feinstein was wise to the window dressing on her tour? That is a very good question. I think that she, advocates have been uh, letting her know about detention issues for years. And I think many uh, politicians are aware that conditions are uh, not up to standard, but their hands are largely tied in doing anything about it. Um, or in the case of even Governor Jerry Brown, who says he's an advocate for immigrant rights, he has received money from private prison companies in the past. Okay, time to start sending letters out of Jesuit cells, mm. those the other kind of cell. <laughs> for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Tina Scholl, a UCI history lecturer and principal activist with Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement. And we're talking about the largest detention facility, private detention facility of ISIS in the newest Adelanto prison near Victorville. And she's giving us uh, sort of our uh, one tour. And I, the, so those women that are now in uh, pregnant in, the, in detention, so it's all, of course, probably different terms of their pregnancy so it gets just more dire with every week yes, which is an, uh, a, a certainty that will, will 
will go in that one path only. The the guards facilitating the tour had had said proudly that no woman had ever given birth while in detention and that, that they means. will be released before they give birth. But there's no prenatal care. Yeah. Tour advocates say, well, why don't you release them now? And they said, well, they have to go through bureaucratic procedure, et cetera, et cetera. So again, this is just a small illustration of the widespread lack of medical care. And yes, good point. There's no prenatal care. Um, this is people have died at Adelanto. Really? And it has Tell been due to, what to medical neglect. Do you, know, do you have any statistics there? Um, I, I do mean, know that three people numbers. have died, I think, since 2014. Wow. And in one case, um, a man had heart failure, and he was taken to not the most local hospital, but one that was 45 minutes away, mm. presumably because it was cheaper. And that's the problem. The There's so many disincentives for providing basic services, so they they simply just aren't addressed. Exactly. When you visit detention center and you you talk to people and they tell you that the clothing that they provide has holes in it, that the food is expired, that the razors that are given to them to shave with are rusty, um, you you see the way that corners are cut in order to, to save money. Oh, my goodness. This is beyond unconscionable. And that, and we understand that the administration would like to expand. It was about 70% of immigration detainees are held in private facilities, but that number will yes. go up according to projection, according to in, intention. Yeah. In, in 2009, it was only about 45% of people were held in for-profit facilities. Now that number is around 70% and is expected to increase. So we're seeing uh, locally, for example, amazing activism has actually made Santa Ana a sanctuary city. Yes. And they've decided to shut down their ICE contract. There has been about 200 people detained at the Santa Ana City Jail, um, and there is a transgender pod that number was cut down to 128 and then now they've announced they will close the jail for immigrant detainees by um 90 days the problem with this is that these folks will you know will they be released will we find sponsors for these people who are very marginalized in the system especially the transgender women or will they be transferred to a new transgender pod that's being built in texas where conditions are likely to be worse um, and the Trump administration is seems to be envisioning um, kind of a conglomeration of larger for-profit facilities being opened that hold thousands of people, as opposed to using local county jails in this kind of patchwork system that exists now. And uh, frankly, that's very scary. So the scrutiny of any one case in these detention centers, it cuts two ways. It both exposes a wrong and it gives, creates a, a situation, a dynamic of retribution. Want to talk about the the net gain or the net loss of what scrutiny the media is is trying mm. to press here at, in these private detention centers? Yes, there has always been this dynamic of, I call it resistance and control, where people are organizing to 
inside and outside and organizing with uh, people on the outside, staging hunger strikes, for example, um, protests, stories appearing in the media. And this is a, a double-edged sword where this can either result in an act of retaliation, people have been put in solitary confinement, people have been deported more swiftly because of speaking out and because of engaging in activism. Um, but on the flip side, activism has gotten people released, waging public campaigns, uh, making enough noise. If a story becomes prominent enough and becomes enough of a headache for ICE, then, um, you know, that has worked in the past. We are, we are in new territory now where the landscape is scarier even. And so there is this, this culture of fear that's spreading and, and people are more want to go into hiding. Um, and there is a, d a debate and uh, within you know, my networks and, and in the work that I do is a great challenge. How do we not make people more, more vulnerable? And, but how do we keep our eyes and ears in the system and expose it for what it is at the same time. So that's a really prickly problem situation then. How yeah. to and, and the way that we address it is that we, you know, everybody has an individual choice of whether they're going to share their story with us publicly, um, whether they want to have a public campaign, whether they want to use their name or not. Um, and I, at Civic, I work in, in what, what we call storytelling. Yes. And that can take a variety of literary, artistic forms. And the intention of it is to expose the system from a variety of angles. And so we can work to, you know, it's really a strength in numbers endeavor. Um, and it's time, and, and, and it, I think it's time for people who are safer, people who are allies, people who are, have citizenship to step up and stand with people in detention um, and and make a stand and say that they will not, we will not accept these conditions. So in the storytelling, is it, could it be as simple, Tina, as simply changing the name, maybe and a few other particular identifiers to get the story out, to capture people's attention and get them to sign on to supporting here in solidarity, or does that is it not that easy? Yes, uh, we we do do that. I mean, um, Democracy Now might have been able to do that with the name, but yeah. but maybe that's a problem when you're so traumatized by this whole press to detain everybody to spread this wide net. How can one cognitively sort of handle the this very difficult kind of cost benefit analysis? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's why I think we have to continually assess as we go and always let the person whose story it is be the final arbiter. And what, what I see uh, historically many, um, many media makers do is that they get a story and then they run with it. And they don't always check back you know, with the person. Okay, um, that's, a, that's a media's responsibility then. Absolutely. Um, and because that. the landscape can change, uh, for example, I had one man share his story for my blog, and then after thinking about it, and we already changed his name, but we did reveal certain details, such as his hometown. Yeah. And then he decided that was too risky, and he asked me to go back and revise that And we know your blog is a, it's probably a resource yeah. for ICE. 
Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> so that, that is, yeah, it is something that, um, this isn't for the faint hearted, but we are standing together to, to stand up to this and we, we should not continue to be bullied into a corner by ice and they have operated and let's talk about that um you know your colleague jan meslin at civic Mm -hmm. uh several weeks ago was was making measure of the kind of ice sort of emboldened employee now can you tell us how that you've seen Mm -hmm. when and how it has changed uh, in dealing with the public speaking of being bullied sure there i think that advocates would want to point out that this this culture has existed for decades and stories like Romulo's uh, out of Highland yes. Park they these have been happening for decades um, it's a concern that ice is is targeting people near a school and you know that historically they have tended to avoid schools churches certain areas that are considered you know, no fly zones because of the negative publicity that it will bring ice. But what well, so where, where is that? Where are those no fly zones? Oh, like schools, for example. Okay. Historically, they have not. They have agreed amongst themselves that they will not go into a school and target someone, or they will not go into a church. And that it, that that was the success of the sanctuary movement was uh, housing people in churches. Okay. Um, however, we have stories from before the Trump administration of ICE officers doing that very thing, targeting people in churches, using false identities um, to, using false identities to lure people out, uh, targeting people near schools. It just, now it's different because there is a certain emboldenedness that, that the Trump administration has enacted. And so there, ICE officers do seem to be given carte blanche in this moment. But I guess I hasten to ask about if the schools are considered a no-fly zone, but if lots of families now feeling the the press of rounding up, that they're keeping their children at home, so their children yeah. aren't at school, and exactly. they're back in at, at risk at concern. home or somewhere else. Yeah, um, ICE has actually come to UC Irvine in the past several years ago All right, walk us looking for it. one individual, and really? that is one story, and it was not widely shared. Share it. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know okay. many more details than that, Okay. Um, but this was under the Obama administration. Right. So it's not that we should understand that this is not that this is wholly new, that the Trump administration is now out of the blue, unleashing this security force to terrorize our communities. Um, Our communities have been terrorized for decades by a rogue agency, especially since 9-11 and the formulation of ICE in particular. Um, But they they have been operating with impunity and with not having to answer to the public very much because these stories have been um, not making it into the mainstream. So our work now is to do that. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, it's my real honor to present Tina Scholl. She's a UCI lectury, le- history lecturer and an activist with Civic, and we're we're moving out in t- from away from some of the these detention stories, and we want to talk about 
what Civic is doing and uh, along with its immigration week, as I mentioned in the introduction here, and I'd like to have you lay out what each of the days, there was one event yesterday, and most days there's going to be a noon event, and there will be an, a sort of late afternoon, early evening event. So tell us, today is a lunchtime uh, item. Yeah, today, th yesterday there was a Building Bridges event with uh, immigrant and Muslim communities on campus. Uh, today there is an art exhibit, I believe, from noon to 2 at the student terrace. And then at 5 o'clock there's also a vigil for those who've been affected by detention and deportation and to honor deaths along the border because there is a border wall that has been in existence for a very long time and it has claimed the lives of over 6,000 people. So that event tonight is raising awareness about that. Tomorrow there's a Dear Immigrant Student event at the Cross-Cultural Center for uh, staff members and professors to uh, send a letter of support to immigrant students on campus. Thursday, there's a Know Your Rights event um, at noon in Ring Room. And then a final plug just for my nonprofit. Yes, um, please. Please visit www.endisolation.org. If you are interested in becoming a volunteer to answer calls on our hotline or visit people in detention. Well, whenever I see Jan, I just empty, I take my cash, whatever cash I have, I just give it to her on her way back uh, over to Tijuana or that something. That works too. <laughs> I'm, you know, so that, that's one thing. But uh, there's also, we're going to post everybody, the, the, the change.org, there's still p petitions, there's a link there, and the end isolation, as you mentioned, and the Facebook page exactly is how, to, how is it read for the immigration week so people can check out each of the days. Because when I open up the Facebook page, it goes straight to the, the day event, not in giving Yeah, the I think there's a separate Facebook event for each day's thing. Or um, Anna Barragon, yes. her office at SOAR is going to have all of those details, yes, too. Yes, exactly. So check her out in the, the profile there. Yes. Well, uh, we, I guess we, are, we can wrap with, I want to assure listeners that Tina always has an open invitation to return with any fresh it's going to be sorted but the sorted stuff is what we all of us less vulnerable people have to hear i'm also wanting to bring on uci's law school that's involved with this mm. as we, we mentioned anna baragon her uh source center we're going to bring her, them on some more and with the dreamers coordinator the anna and also the uci chicano latino studies has involved faculty and all of them are going to be continuing to hold workshops for the essential things people do, but the main thing I want to just say is that for people to know is ask for a warrant when you're approached. Yes. If, if they don't have a warrant, what, uh, I mean, you're not an attorney, but that, I mean, if we could just do that little public service closing. Absolutely. Invoke your right to remain silent until you speak to a lawyer. Silent. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and probably that's hard to do when you're your heart rate has just mm -hmm. like quadrupled mm -hmm. and uh, who knows what situation you're in. Maybe you've got yeah. a full bladder. You've got, uh, I mean, I can't imagine the kinds yeah. of things that could be going on that could compromise your being in the top of your game when approached mm -hmm. there. Well, Absolutely. Tina, it's been, a, it's a necessity to have you on. A pleasure is a, it's a different feeling than yeah. I would say. <laughs> I really uh, appreciate Thanks for coming that. to the show and I'm looking forward to having you come back and Please keep us up to date. Thank you. On I this. will.
Okay. Thank well, you that, very much. Thank you. Well, that was Tina Scholl. She's a UCI lecturer, principal active at Civic, and we'll be back right after a very short station break with UCI professor of gender and sexuality studies, Jean Shepard, to talk about our brand new book entitled Moving Performances, Divas, Iconicity, and Remembering the Modern Stage, published by Rutgers. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Jean Shepard, Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at UCI. She is here to talk about her recently released book, Moving Performances, Diva Iconicity, and Remembering the Modern Stage, published by Rutgers University Press. Her book introduces readers including me, to four remarkable divas from the early 20th century, Ada Overton Walker, Loie Fuller, Libby Holman, and Josephine Baker, who worked to subvert the tropes of exoticism, orientalism, and primitivism commonly used to dismiss women of color. I'm going to first list Jean Shepard's activist roles, which she's held down, a former shop steward for the teacher's assistant union at UC Santa Barbara while she was a grad student. She's published on the gendered rhetoric of labor debates and the importance of archives for feminist visual cultural activism in feminist studies. And as research director for the Palm Center, a public policy think tank on sexual minorities in the military, she contributed to the repeal of the military's don't ask, don't tell policy and furthering research on transgender military service before joining UCI's faculty in 2009. Her research interests include questions of archives, and that will come up in our conversation about her new book, Memory, Labor, and the Afterlives of Cultural Ideas, Images, and Performances in Radical Teacher, she published an article on faculty and education debt in Quicksand in African American Review, and, and she, she published on Nella Larson's On the Diva Politics of Reception and Josephine Baker's Iconicity in the Feminist Film and Media Studies journal Camera Obscura. Jean Shepard earned her BA in Liberal Arts and Studio Arts at Sarah Lawrence College, her Master's of Arts in English Literature at the University of Maryland, her PhD in English Literature at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Houston, and attended Cornell School of Criticism and Theory. She was a Hellman Fellow, 2013-14. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Jean Shepard. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Thanks to KUCI and our previous guest for the work they're doing as well. Well, I appreciate your honoring that. I we all do, and there's there's just infinite need for us to to step up and offer. Well, congratulations. Thank you on on this book. Your precision and your range constantly informs and challenges the reader, nice. including me. And I I could imagine 
this book. I mean, I let my mind really race around yeah. where this could be taught in so many different seminars, gender mm -hmm. studies for sure, mm -hmm. history, racial politics, performance art, art criticism. What was your intention, Dean, for uh, the readership? Well, I love all of those ideas. <laughs> um, I think, you know, in one ways, one of my big readers is my grandmother um, who gave me the postcard that you see on the cover oh, of the book. And she gets the last word, but folks, right. but we're not, this is not a spoiler. Not a spoiler we're alert, exactly. But in other words, I did see it as a book that was obviously academic. It's a first book. It came out of my dissertation, but it also is something that I saw could be appealing to a general audience that's looking for these histories that were not always taught in the classroom or in the, you know, in official narratives. One, I love all your ideas. One that I would add to it would be dance departments. Oh, oh, oh I missed. Oh, well, that's performance art. Yes. But performance so. art, I know it kind of conjures up a certain genre mm -hmm. in in the performing arts but yeah, yeah you're right the dance club. oh yeah. absolutely because it's really talking about you know what are the ways that we tell the story of performance and dance and what gets lost when we tell the narrative a certain way that is that huge part of the equation that you put in our consciousness if we are not on uh, mindful of that so you mentioned uh, that your your grandmother, you found mm -hmm. that card, but that's still, we're going to keep that spoiler yeah. out there, <laughs> that when was it that you were aware of all the, I mean, Josephine mm -hmm. Baker is the only one I knew of. Right. The other three were brand new to me. So how did you, how did they come across your right. consciousness? You no, know, it's interesting. And when you talk to different people, they will, um, they will be familiar with different figures. So I would say Baker is the most familiar figure for most people, right? Because she lived the longest. She lived the longest and she was probably the most prominent global, I mean, she's the first global diva that we have actually. And so people are aware of her and she had such an incredibly long and productive life, right? Um, she was performing literally until, you know, the week um, that she died on the stage. But if you, if you talk to musical theater buffs they'll know Libby Holman right people who love oh, that will. torch song genre they will know Holman but she's never been written about in an academic sense right there's um there's really just kind of this tabloid popular biographical history of her that's out there so if you're interested in Tallulah Bankhead or you know okay um, some other figures you might come across Holman Ada Overton oh. Walker is the one who's really the most important who's the least known now, there's been a sort of renaissance and scholarship on her very recently, and so I think that will change. But again, in her lifetime, she was an incredibly important figure, but um, got erased from the archive, you know. And especially, you know, it's especially important to think about that because she's an African-American innovator of the American art dance, and she should be seen as one of the mothers of modern dance. And she's not always in that little list that we might get of the Isadora Duncans and so forth. And I will. I intend to spend as much time mm -hmm. as we can on Ada Overton Walker. But in general, mm -hmm. when you talk about how ephemeral right. performance art is, as you say, especially yes. dance. Yes. You know what it made me just really trouble about is all of the performances before these women you yes. must have been thinking about that too absolutely so you They're asked gone. me i know they are and and they're yeah we don't have necessarily the recorded record right and or what the they what their moving record. cultural criticisms were that i mean we none of that it's it just absolutely vanished mm -hmm. So some of it's That's vanished so and some of it we're not looking at. So it's two, right. it's two problems. Right? right, right, right. And you asked me how I got started on it. I was originally yes. a scholar of the liter literary period of the fin de siècle and was interested in the kind mm -hmm. of proliferation of images of misogynistic images of the femme fatale, right? Negative imagery of right. women. 
But if you look at that period, those images of the femme fatale also get produced by the Oscar Wildes, by these kind of gay artists. And they end up using that image to talk about, you know, changes in sexuality and gender in that period. Then I was like, well, what are the women doing with these femme fatales? So I began looking at those early bad girls of the 20th, you know, the early 20th century, turn of the century. And that kind of led me down this path. And what's important about it for me, too, is that looking at the ways in which you know, they're doing these kind of, you know, they're divas, right? They're doing these fun, you know, spectacular um, kinds of performances. But I'm not just interested in that. I'm interested in what was the politics of that performance on and off stage. And so what you get is a kind of intellectual history that you might not get if you're just looking at literary texts, for instance, you know, or more traditional um, kinds of histories. Yeah, so heady. So then you just sort of gave us a, a definition. Is there a, the full-on definition of what a diva is? So I mean, can I for, read from the book briefly? Oh, absolutely. That's <laughs> so, what, there are a couple of citations we're going to be so, going to, but okay. your so favorite. There's one, there's a one passage I like about the diva. Divas are paradoxical figures, I write, who can evoke powerful attachments, marginal figures who are larger than life, whose lives or art are only available in fragmentary yet legendary ways, and whose effects can be obscure but lasting. Such figures require scholars and fans to ask how one comes to know through a field staged as spectacle as well as absence and disappearance, or viewed as close up yet at a distance. So divas are objects of intense devotional activity, objects of affection and adoration. This adoration comes from the cultural permission the diva confers on the devotee, Mm -hmm. a tacitly uncensored permission to inhabit and script his or her own passions. Divas imbue their fans with diva power. Divas disseminate their ability to stage unashamed negotiations and contestations between convention and transgression through highly public performances. The devotional intensity of diva reception then and now ensures these figures a queer afterlife. In other words, a persistence Uh that works against temporal norms and possibly enables those elements of the diva's performance history that are vulnerable to illegibility to be unpacked. So that is to say the diva is important, but diva iconicity is more important, like what fans and audiences do. What they pick and select Mm -hmm. and and carry for Mm -hmm. appropriate into their own practices, messages, practices and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, you talk in your title is moving performances. And that moving is a very operative expression that you unpackage as your book assesses what each of these divas achieved mastering their respective art forms uh, working uh, both as uh, cultural producers and critics Mm -hmm. talk to us about the um, what mobility means it's a I mean it's quite an extensive thing you talk about and I'm asking you to do it in shorthand (laughs) I mean I've uh, that it's interesting because that title came at the beginning of the project and just it worked and it lasted it's like my title my silly radio title and it keeps working and it moving but moving so I you know obviously performances are moving they have an affective quality right they move us right they move us to laugh to tears etc so there was just that kind of meaning of like what perform the work that performance does But these performances also move across time. And so I was interested in what I call their, you know, what we think of as their afterlives. And I was also interested in sort of how they get retroactivated in Mm -hmm. the, the, so I try to play with the temporality of movement. And so thinking about like what happens again as they move um, through time and how time bends back on itself. But then there's also, this is a period where performers were um, mobile. They were moving. They were leaving the U.S. They were expatriates in Europe. So I'm looking mostly at the transatlantic and the kind of circulation. And what was interesting to me about that movement 
was the way that those performances um, shifted in terms of the kind of racial politics of the audiences. So these performers would move from Jim Crow segregated U.S. stages to, you know, Europe and the kind of colonial World's Fair, um, you know, kind of audience. And so there was meanings attached to race and gender and sexuality that were consistent in that movement. And there were some that were really different in how they were spectacularized. Um, and then I'm also looking at, and, you know, part of my chapter on Loey Fuller also looks at Kawakami Sadayako, who was the first um, female-bodied woman on the Japanese stage who then traveled again to the U.S. and Europe. And so these performers, you know, they knew each other. They knew of each other. They Im- There's a lot of imitation that was also, you know, um, something that was um, troubling to the performers, but also something that they used, right, as a tool, this tool of imitation. So those are at least three <laughs> of the major ways that I use movement, like geographic movement, temporal movement, and the sort of affective emotional movement of performance. And actually sort of moving to uh, in and out of different audiences yes. and uh, moving. Uh, there, there's so much. It's so rich. So the as I was talking about the ephemeral, poss- you make the case um, that the well, we talked about the the acts. I'm I'm wondering if mm-hmm. part of our well, th- there was a misrecognition yes. in the during their time, mm-hmm. but then after that, where they became forgotten, and I just don't mm-hmm. know if there was a homogenization that happened yes. with a couple two world wars and a great depression if that had a way of sort of discarding Mm -hmm. some of those uh, kind of non sort of uh, um, dominant culture kind Mm -hmm. of affiliations Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think that's a really interesting question um, uh, that I actually would have to think more about um, but I think that there is this kind of, you know, when you have, it is the this period that's bookended by war. And so you do have a lot of kind of nationalist discourse, right, that is infused in performance and that performance is in the service of. And so right. I think you, you're right that that does impact exactly the archive or how we tell the story, you know, of that period. Absolutely. Well, let's we just let's bring Ada out now. Ada okay. Overton Walker to me. I'd like you to explain the cakewalk it's it's the origin and its evolution from a source of diversion yes to uh, among slaves to a source of parody of slaves of their their slave owners and then the uh, what is done as a commentary after all of that what it meant for ada overton walker to incorporate the cakewalk Mm -hmm. in her repertoire yeah absolutely and i just want to say I focus on her Salamania dance and the cakewalk. I, do, yeah. The cakewalk kind of, you know, is important because it, pre, you know, kind of precedes that and informs, you know, uh, the kind of politics that she brings to the Salamania right. dance. So um, I just want to also plug, you know, um, Jaina Brown's book, Babylon Girls, um, which really goes into the cakewalk and David Krasner's work and, um, and uh, Daphne Brooks. So there's been this great work on the cakewalk. The cakewalk um, actually has its roots in African festival dances, but in the pre-Civil War era, it was a festival dance on the plantation. Um, and it was, you know, people would wear their Sunday best and it was a square dance with couples, you know, in high manners. But what's interesting about the cakewalk and that people have talked about it is as this site um, of parody of the white masters. So it becomes a plantation performance that's parodying the highfalutin manners. Um, at the same time, then it gets absorbed into white performers who are performing minstrelsy. And so then it becomes a kind of racist caricature of black performance. But then the period I'm writing about is what we call what Cedric Robinson calls the period of the audacious black minstrel. 
These were um, black performers trying to carve out a space for serious theatrical performance, but they were um, confined, right, and constrained by these conventions, by audiences who wanted to see the racist portrayals of black people. And so they perform both within and against those forms. So you get this incredible, you know, you have blacks imitating whites, whites imitating what they think of as black culture, and then blacks kind of taking, having to perform within that and then produce their own actual, you know, black performance. So the cakewalk has that, you know, it's a site of critique and it's a site where you do see the reproduction of racist um, forms. And Um, with that in mind, I'd like for, if you would read what you lift out of Ada Overton Walker's own writing, uh, it's called Color Line in Musical Comedy, which we should all be aware of what they had to negotiate. Exactly. Thank you for pointing to that. So for me, this was one of the most important kind of moments in the archive was finding the scrap of Walker's voice, right? Her, she was not only this performer, but she was an activist and she wrote editorials that were published in the black press um, and then cited. Um, and so I'm going to read you just a little bit about what I wrote about it, and then I'll read you in full the um, her own words, her which own are words. essential. Yes. So I say this is perhaps the most significant surviving piece of the archive because it contributes to understanding the political will that undergirds Overton Walker's overall autistic ar- um, output. So in this piece, Walker directly addresses the mandate on the body of color to perform and to perform in such a way as to both not offend white audiences and fulfill the racist fantasies of racialized others that audiences you know, desired. She articulates the way that racist white society expects black people to be always on stage, whether in the theater or in the streets, performing certain recognizable tropes of blackness. So here's what she wrote. It's yes. a color line in musical comedy by Ada Overton Walker. She says, you haven't the faintest conception of the difficulties which must be overcome, of the prejudices which must be soothed, of the things we must avoid. Whenever we write or sing a piece of music, put on a play or sketch, walk out in the streets, or land in a new town. No white can understand these things. Every little thing we do must be thought out and arranged by Negroes, because they alone know how easy it is for a colored show to offend a white audience. Let me give you an example, she writes, in all the 10 years that I have appeared in and helped to produce a great many plays of a musical nature, there has never been even the remotest suspicion of a love story in any form. During those 10 years, I don't think there has been a single white company which has produced any kind of musical play in which a love story was not the central motive. Now, why is this? It's not by accident or because we don't want to put on plays as beautiful or as artistic in every way as do white actors, but because there is a popular prejudice against love scenes enacted by Negroes. That's the term of the period. That's just one of the many things we must think of every time we make a play. The public does not appreciate our limitations or rather the limitations other persons have made for us. That was so stunning. What a marvel to find that. Yeah, and I think and it's, yes. for students, it's so important to understand also just that idea that performance, the moving performances, it's not just on stage. It's the social performances that we're required to perform or the ways in which we perform against them that are so important to look at in this period and now. For those of you who just joined us, it's my pleasure I have on for you today at UCI Professor Jean Shepard about her newly released book titled Moving Performances, Diva Iconicity, and Remembering the Modern Stage from Rutgers University Press about divas from the earliest 20th century. We're talking about now Ada mm-hmm. Overton-Walker, Loie Fuller, Libby Holman, and Josephine Baker. Well, let's, Libby mm-hmm. Holman, 
her movement was mm-hmm. passing in from in and out of different races. She was able, she was passing as black, passing as white. It was sort of like, and it was her own kind of her joke uh, mm-hmm. on society. So we'll we'll close with her rendition at the end of the show uh, okay. with a uh, House of the Rising Sun. But she had a particular voice quality yes. and a, an appearance. She's a Jewish woman mm-hmm. and uh, an appearance that m- was a little ambiguous. And she played that to the max. But she mm-hmm. also transformed her her performance artistry over her. And, and she had more control than the others with how her archives were handled. Yeah, I mean, she's the one who really produced an official archive, literally, at Boston University, where she donated her papers, partly because Martin Luther King's papers were there as well. And she okay. had these two very distinct careers. The first was as a torch singer. Um, and yes, she relished these stories of um, being um, a, a Jewish woman who could pass as black and told a story about, oh, I was try- I was tried to be recruited to this all-black cast, and my director said no, and the other one said, well, you don't realize she's passing is black and she loved those stories about her racial ambiguity early in her career however she came to also recognize that the torch song was a product um, that took the blues took this african-american form and marketed it through white bodies and white voices to white audiences and so she became more uncomfortable with that kind of racial politics of the earlier genre so she tried to distance herself from it so she formed a second career as what she called kind of blues ballads and sin songs. She tried to kind of incorporate the first mm-hmm. career, but make this new career as a, as a civil rights benefactor doing concert blues. Blowtorch. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> um, so she, you know, and I think she didn't escape in that second career, these politics, but, uh, you know, it's a kind of, um, a kind of stretching uh, that she was trying to do with her voice, literally, um, uh, to, you know, to kind of think through what her relationship to this material was. So and then, yeah, she donates, I think, her archive partly in that interest also and kind of sealing her legacy, you know, as an advocate for civil rights and social justice. So listeners, it behooves you to pick up a book because this is all we can say about her as we go. (laughs) We try to mention about Loe Fuller, Mm -hmm. who combined dance with technological wizardry Mm -hmm. in a period where Orientalism was the rage. And I just have to tell you Mm -hmm. while we're together is that I have a Japanese was she was a performance artist and she is an instrumentalist now Mm. and when I mentioned to her the Kawakami Sadiako she had not heard of her either so you're putting us all uh, uh, to work to find out really things that were it's amazing to find out yeah and I there I have to plug Ayako Kano's book because she has acting like a woman on the stage in modern Japan and that's really where that's really you know a foundational book if you want to read more about her it's so important but what I was trying to do is also is kind of bring a Yako Kano's work into the conversation about Fuller even more because so often Fuller, you know, is lauded for, <clears throat> and she was really an early special effects innovator in the theater. She's lauded for her experiments with, you know, using these batons and so forth. What gets maybe not talked about as much is sort of what her relationship was with as a manager for right. these other performers. Um, and then how... You know, basically, she created this juxtaposition of her new modern forms against this kind of ancient Orientalism that she manufactured by putting herself on the same stage with these performers and kind of limiting their repertoire. So what they were performing that that particular troupe, the Kawakami troupe in Japan, were like really modern, innovative, you know, um, kinds of acting techniques and so forth. But when they came to the U.S. and Europe, they were, again, kind of packaged in this Orientalist, you know, kind of pseudo kabuki frame. Um, so I kind of look at that, you know, the uses of Orientalism in Fuller's work. And then 
with our time remaining yes. is <laughs> Baker. the, the <laughs> La, La Baker, yes. Josephine Baker, the only diva about whom I was aware, as I said, because of the complexity of her repertoire, revaluing her work, as you say, we can productively reframe, I'm quoting you, productively mm -hmm. reframe our own nostalgia for her in the current moment, or what you call retroactivating yes. a really important project for for all of us for our for our society was well, still a white a caucasian dominant culture mm -hmm. and i'm still quoting you turning our critical gaze farther afield to other kinds of sites where baker's iconicity is consumed cited and redeployed allows us to remember the extent to which baker produced complexity within the limits of historic spectralization as you're talking mm -hmm. about and commodification of the black female body mm -hmm. i guess i'm going to let the listeners draw their own comparisons okay. with contemporary sure. divas yes. they're out there and uh, and there's been some newer productions of theirs that that are out as yes. after you had written this book That's that correct. would require that can make some so tell as we're I guess we're wrapping here mm -hmm. there's hope for these women's legacies to be more accurately recognized more valued culturally with your book as an important guide yes thank you so much I, I really and I think Baker is a great one to look at because the FBI monitored Baker. And so one of the archives for Baker is these 359 pages of, of FBI files. And I just say that because we're in this new cultural moment, right, where yeah. um, this kind of state surveillance and, uh, you know, the kind of perceived danger of speaking out about racial injustice. We're kind of in that moment again. And that's something Baker really faced and addressed in her own career and that I look at. But yes, I'm interested in how we can look at these later kind of engagements with Baker's work. And I think it helps to fill in those gaps in the archive and help us understand the political work that she was doing in the earlier moments. That's very interesting. And for instance, when the FBI and State Department curtailed Baker's ability to speak out about racial injustice, you know, she left the stage and became this mother, right, of 13 right. adopted kids. Yes. So I'm interested her in comparing her to Beyonce's her motherhood. Her tribe. Yeah, the, so, the tribe. Yeah. Well, there's some other divas that have their tribes. Right. But, and so. we'll leave that. So kudos to your uncanny wrap you. of the project. Thank you, Jean Chapper, for coming on the show thank and bringing you so these much. remarkable. Thank you It's really a pleasure. Oh, thank you. My guest was UCI professor Jean Chepper about her newly released book, Moving Performances, Diva Iconicity, and Remembering Modern Stage from Rutgers University Press talk with you next week. What I wanted to do, though, was play for you Libby Holman, House of the Rising Sun.